1: If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today, we have a listener favorite back on the show, Mr. Travis Murray. Travis, how are you doing? I'm doing great, y'all. Good. Jacob, how are you doing, doing. over there?
0: Doing well. I'm super excited. This is this has been like 18 months in the working here. This is
1: something that we talked about doing last year, and uh, the, the like you said earlier, the, the window kind of passed for when we wanted to do it, but this is something that, uh, Travis, I've been kind of eager to talk about because this is a this is a conversation that takes something that is like very intangible. Um, and we're going to try to kind of tackle it here. And that is something that we talk about all the time and it's small game hunting and how that applies to your whitetail hunting. And it's something that if guys have never done it, you know, you have people who small game hunted and you're just like, Man, you should go do it. It'll make you a better hunter and they're like, How? And it's like, that's kinda hard to explain, but I promise it'll make you a better hunter. So we're gonna kinda attempt to explain that today with you, Travis. Uh so Travis, um if, if we have any new listeners or whatever on the show, uh could you just give us a quick background of who you are and your background in, in deer hunting and small game hunting?
2: Yeah, I live in South Mississippi, southwest Mississippi, not far from the our land is on the Homacheta River. Uh, we're not far from the Mississippi River, right above Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I do a lot of public land hunting. I'm mostly known for traditional archery. That's my first love. Um, I do catch dogs and other things. Squirrel hunting is another love of mine. And uh, that's, I'm just an old country boy that loves to hunt.
0: And Andrew, what episodes uh, were the first two? Because early in this conversation, because uh, since... The first time, Travis, actually the first two times we had you on, Travis, I think that was back in 2020, uh, a, a lot of things have kind of changed, especially when it comes to the audience and audience size. But those first couple episodes we had you on, Andrew, what numbers were those? So the first one was uh,
1: episode 210, and it's Ghillie Suit Groundhunting a Buck's Bedroom, just to... Get the listeners all fired up about that. Y'all should definitely go listen to that. And then the second one was 213, Understanding a Killing Wind While Targeting Mature Bucks with, with Travis
0: Which Murray. that topic has come up very often recently is the killing wind. 100%. Not, not, we're not going to get too sidetracked on that. Maybe we'll get to that conversation a little bit later. But uh, definitely those episodes and that, and that uh, information that Travis, you covered in those episodes It's still very, very applicable today, and we still have a ton of listener success stories come from both of those episodes, especially two thirteen with talking about the killing wind. But that kind of, kind of get us well, kind of, kind of. That's an interesting little phrase there to get us started, Travis, on this conversation and how small game hunting directly can apply to woodsmanship to you know white tail hunting. Can we talk a little bit about your background, especially maybe as a kid growing up and kind of maybe in your teenage years and getting into your, your 20s? How was small game hunting, specifically squirrel hunting, something that was applicable to you at that time? And kind of give us a run through of what changed with that to kind of make you a better whitetail hunter when it comes to woodsmanship.
2: Well, by the time I was in my late teens or early 20s, I was already an old hat at Small game hunting. I started that very young in my, I guess, seriously, eight or nine. My grandfather had a big influence. He loved squirrel hunt. He was a good woodsman. To this day, he could do things with an old Remington iron sided bolt action 22 that I don't fully understand, but he was a miraculous shot with one. The the small game hunting was my first introduction to hunting. And when we talked before, before we did this, when we was talking about setting this up, one of the most important things that I think it feeds that I don't want to look over is the fact that it develops not only woodsmanship, but it develops a love of the woods and hunting itself. If you love deer hunting and you get you a twenty-two or a shotgun, I don't want to be a snob, I hunt with twenty-twos. Um, I don't like eating number six shots, so I, I haven't squirrel hunted with a shotgun. I was probably a 4'10 and 8 years old. I transitioned to 22s almost immediately. And uh, But it, it's, it's great fun. And when I first started, all the elders in my family, as you all know from talking to me before, I'm not exactly a guy to put in the box. The hunting, they always tried to put me in a box. And I climb right out of the box and do my own thing. And the way I was taught to squirrel hunt from my uncle and my grandfather is they would plant me at the base of a feed tree with a 410 back then. And you sit there, you be very quiet, and you wait for the squirrels. You shoot one, you be still, you wait for them to start getting active again, you shoot another one. And that went on for probably a couple of years. And I guess what changed was I started noticing in one particular spot where I would go and sit at a tree, I would see squirrels in the tops of other trees. And I was always taught, well, if you try to go over there to them, you're just going to rum off, stay put, stay still, don't move. Well, I just decided to try it one day. And I didn't do too well. And I realized that just through trial and error, but I I had a lot of fun and I was indeed spooking the squirrels, but I enjoyed it so much more than just sitting at the base of a tree waiting for them to come back. I kept doing it and I learned to move quieter. I learned to move much, much slower. And I got to the point that instead of not hardly killing any squirrels, I started killing a lot of squirrels. After a few years of that, I was a pretty sneaky little dude. I learned to use, I call them fall magnolias. They're, they look like a magnolia leaf, but they grow in the understory of swamps and forests and big oak trees. And they look like little tiny magnolias, but they never get very big. And I learned things like stopping at a tree where you have a rest to shoot, try to stop in the shade if at all possible. Uh, moving slowly, don't break sticks. I learned the principle of you can move even with animals in close proximity. you can move. you just have to move extremely slowly. So I learned most everything in my woodsmanship was learned very early with squirrels. And when I started becoming more interested in deer hunting, specifically, And I started deer hunting early too, but it was, they load everybody up, they take you to a stand, they put you there, they turn the dogs out and you wait there until something runs by or it doesn't and you don't move. And that just, that wasn't me. I loved, I loved to hear the dogs run. I liked all of that part, but I just was not a sit put type of guy. And of, of course, when you're running dogs and you have other people in the woods running dogs, you can't get up and start roaming around. That's, That's just not a good idea. But on my own, I began to deer hunt like I squirrel hunted, slipping around. And if it wasn't for the seasoning and the the woodsmanship I learned hunting squirrels, it it just never would have worked.
0: And that's something that if people have listened to those first two episodes we interviewed you on, which is episode 210 and 213, this kind of makes more and more sense as we're having this conversation because your style of hunting isn't necessarily like you're going to go sit in a, a pre-hung stand or anything like that because people also realize that you love hunting off the ground, too, and have a lot of success hunting off the ground, specifically uh, with your ghillie suits and also your uh, your traditional archer equipment, but it, it directly applies to how you deer hunt. It, compared to like what you were doing small game hunting and especially as you were able to kind of mold so when it came to like small game hunting again it was like those those fine details of understanding not only how you can move but also i'm guessing reading some sign or having a very uh keen ear to what's happening around you can you talk a little bit about that especially when it comes to like different points of the season if you were you know squirrel hunting how like your hearing could play maybe an advantage over just sight alone, especially maybe during the early season. How that maybe can directly apply to white to honey as well.
2: Squirrels, of course, you don't have to worry about smell. So I didn't learn anything about. I had to learn that later, and that was a that was quite a learning curve in and of itself. Squirrels, the key factor is eyesight, and it teaches you to pick up movement. You don't. You don't look for a squirrel, you look for limbs moving, brush rattling, things like that. You Specifically, depending on the time of the year, if it's early season and there's a lot of leaves, you just can't see through a lot of places. So you, you just learn to pick up movement with your eyes. In the late season, when the leaves are gone, you can see a great distance with the squirrels. They'll be up at the top of trees and you can see a great distance. But they spend more time on the ground in late season, so you've got to learn to watch the ground. So the, the the squirrel hunting can teach you basic movements. And if you can if you can slip up on a feed tree full of squirrels and not spook them and get within 22 range, you can slip up on a deer.
0: And I'm just going to say this right now. You know, we're 10-ish minutes into this podcast. And I just want to let the listener know this is an episode I feel like is going to be a must-listen for a lot of people to understand, like, this woodsmanship and how this can directly apply. Whether you decide to go squirrel hunting, you know, that's on you. But just what can be learned. And also, I want to mention this, Travis, and get your take on it. My upbringing was different from Andrew's upbringing. And I think Andrew's upbringing is going to be very similar to yours. When I got into introduced to hunting, it was straight into deer hunting. There was no such – we did – I never went small game hunting until I went hunting with – well, I went small game hunting. I went squirrel hunting one time and we didn't even see a squirrel. And it was with one of my other uncles and we just were walking around the property. That was it. But I never went small game hunting until I met Andrew, like in college. So small game hunting was never on the radar. And our, I'm not going to say my generation because I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I feel like specifically that age range, people like right now in their, their mid 20s to 30s, unless they had somebody that was a woodsman at heart that took that into consideration, we grew up hunting over food plots and, and over, you know, just open areas. Like we never, you know, hunted feed sign or anything like that. It was just mostly food plot hunting. And that's what got me very burnt out early on, especially by the time I was in high school and college. Because when I was in high school, I went to a place, which we talked about this before, where I went to a high school, a boarding school that had 2,500 acres, and I could roam the whole place. I could have a weapon. we had I had muzzleloaders. I had shotguns there. I had my archery equipment, my tree stand in my dorm room. And I would literally, after school, if I didn't have sports – go hit the woods, and, and learned a lot there, to be honest, by myself or with my buddy Marshall, which then kind of got me re-fired up of, like, the woodsmanship aspect because I was never really taught that growing up. It was just talking about, like, quote-unquote scent control, which we don't have to get into, or or in the wind aspect. And I feel like there's a lot more kids now growing up, too, that are or even people in their 20s, 30s, or even 40s that are just now getting into deer hunting or, or big-game hunting that never small-game hunted at all, And I feel like the people that did small game hunt have a huge advantage compared to the people that never did, especially when it comes to the woodsmanship. And, Andrew, maybe you can touch on that with Mr. (coughs) Benny and everything. Yeah, I mean,
1: definitely, like, Jacob, in turkey season, he was – me and Jacob were joking around this year because he says I get, quote, unquote, shark eyes. Like, when when something is about to happen, like when I'm on a goblin turkey – or when I'm like putting a stalk on a deer or something, like when we hunt out west, like I get this look, I get like locked in and I'm like zoned into that one thing. And squirrel hunting is where that comes from, a hundred percent. When I was when I was younger, Travis, pretty much exactly like what you were talking about, uh, sitting underneath a feed tree, and you know you might shoot a squirrel or two, but then you kind of start moving around. You learn what you can and can't get away with when you're trying to move on a squirrel or. And even just learning, uh, you know, the, the body language and the and the attitude of your quarry, too, because you mentioned uh, squirrel hunting in, in late season. One thing that I did when I was really young, and they, they would hand me a shotgun, just like what you were talking about, and kind of send me off, is uh, when I had squirrels on the ground and they were too far away, if they're rummaging around in the leaves, I could... I would stand up and I would walk briskly straight at them. And a lot of times they would just kind of freeze and watch me for a second, I guess trying to figure out what I would do. And then by the time that they needed to get out of there, it was too late. I was in range and they'd jump up on a tree and I'd shoot them. And so uh, there's just like certain things like that that I feel like have uh, carried over really well. You know, not only in my deer hunting here, but we went to Wyoming and we hunted mule deer and we had to stock up on them, that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, I felt like it directly related to that and Travis you mentioned a little bit about kind of your transition from squirrel hunting into deer hunting and I kind of want to expand on that a little bit so you started getting into deer hunting and you you weren't liking the the sitting in one spot and you wanted to get out and move what were some of those kind of early learning curves when you went from uh, I'm going to sit here in the stand and wait for the dogs to run a deer past me to I'm going to go out and I'm going to go find the deer and sneak up on them
2: squirrel hunting and I've been sitting here listening to y'all and and I'm trying to I kind of tell stories with parables I like parables and the the small game doesn't have to be I I started hunting everything because my grandparents they they introduced me to squirrel hunting that was my first form of hunting but when I was in DeRitter, Louisiana stuck in living in a city for a summer or two. I was out with blow guns hunting robins and blue jays and anything else. So I found something to hunt. That probably wasn't legal, but I don't <laughs> think they lost <locked> <laughs> it. But you know, and, and I, I got pretty dangerous with PVC pipe, clothes hangers, and, and impromptu blow guns because you couldn't just go buy them back then. And so the squirrel hunting created the hunger to hunt. And it, it taught. I learned how to travel creek bottoms. I learned how to move through the woods without sounding, without making more noise than a Motley Crue concert. Just the the my basics of woodmans, woodsmanship came from hunting squirrels, rabbits, robins, blue jays, anything. As a very it came very young. Had I just been thrown into the mix without that bass, I don't think I'd be the same person I am today. I, I, I can't really, it would have almost be like just going and doing MMA cold turkey is the way I think of just hunting deer like you were talking about. You, it was just what you did. You'd never had no other experience. The closest thing I can think of, it'd be just like going and and joining the UFC with no experience. It's it's going to be a serious learning curve.
0: That, that's a that's a really good point and that's kind of where i look at this now is you know i yeah i learned uh, you know I, I did learn things from my uncles growing up and especially specifically hunting with him because again my dad didn't hunt so i was hunting with my my mother's uh two brothers and the the, the challenge was and this is where i realized like the woodsmanship i don't even know the term woodsman when i was in high school but when i went to high school I'm doing this all on myself, all my own on 2,500 acres. It was like part of a cattle property. They had like a bunch of cattle. They had a big Black Angus cattle operation. So we had to make sure we didn't shoot the cows. We would have been in a lot of trouble. Um, but like hunting around the cattle and then getting out away from the cattle, there was no such thing as food plots. There's no such thing as like, there's no baiting. There's There's no like, you had to understand like, reasoning for why like you don't understand like reading tracks and figuring out rubs and stuff and i learned a lot in those four years of literally being on my own there was no one necessarily there showing me like oh let's go do this go do that and i learned a lot in that little window of time compared to what i'd learned previously which was hunting with my uncles going to a pre-hung ladder stand or a shooting house and just sitting over a food plot which was fun we had success there but I learned so much more when I was taken away from that situation and have to go fend for myself, and and sh- truly struggled. I mean, truly struggled. I think I killed. Uh, funny story. I won't. We won't say it now. Killed a doe. It's kind of weird how it happened, but uh, yeah. This strange how it happened. But you killed killed one doe, and uh, and that was it while I was out there. Uh, my buddy Marshall shot a really cool eleven point. They had this crazy second main or triple main beam going on and stuff while we were hunting together. And it kind of made me think now, like going back, if you had like that woodsmanship of understanding like how to move through the woods and how to also read some sign, how much more effective someone could be in that situation, which brings back again, like the small game aspect and like understanding how to move through the woods and also understanding like what that looks like from reading sign, especially as you're going through, like you said, you know, squirreling is a very visual game. I know, you know, hearing can play a, you know, a part of that, but also seeing your surroundings and understanding, like you're saying like what can you get away with while you're moving through the woods that directly applies when you're white whitetail hunting especially like on a on an afternoon hunt and you're trying to ease your way into a spot and, and not sound like that motley crew cotton are going off while you're trying to go in there and, and understanding like the importance of silencing equipment understanding the importance of watching where your foot's being placed when you're trying to get close especially that bedding area and, and putting it all together and understanding like what you could and couldn't get away with, which you can't get away with a ton. And I feel like now, again, not having that small game experience, I think if I would have had that, especially as a kid growing up, or even now, I mean, to be honest, I, I still don't do it a whole bunch. Andrew tried to get me to go last year, I didn't go. I don't know. So, but I feel like you could learn so much from that, that, again, directly applies to that woodsmanship, and especially understanding, like, how to move through the woods and put that into your whitetail uh toolbox to make you more an effective hunter really
2: i I think one thing i'm going to take you in in, as an example and i see it in other people because i know a lot of folks that did not cut their teeth small game hunting they did not hunt with uncles and grandpas they got to be young men and women and then they just got into deer hunting i know a lot of people like that on average, and typically, they tend to be more goal-oriented hunters. In other words, they go out, they start, they get success great. If they don't get success, it seems to hit them harder. One of the greatest things that I learned from small game hunting and, and other thing is to just enjoy hunting the fact when when you become too goal oriented it takes the fun out of hunting if you if you've got to get if you've got to put a 140 on the ground or you're not happy or you got to kill a giant buck or so many deer a year goal oriented hunting is the single best way to make it not fun anymore when you get to the point that you can go out and have a deer season like I did last year and still look back smile be happy and because i didn't kill a deer last year i had one that just completely whooped my butt and i still enjoyed it i wouldn't trade it for the world the small game hunting builds a foundation that really helps now the good news is you can still learn all of this go squirrel hunting if right now if you go squirrel hunting or go go if you really want to have some fun and you probably want to eat a lot go rabbit hunting with a 22 during the day without dogs just trying to find rabbits in the bushes i love doing that and it ain't a good way to eat a lot of rabbits i'll tell you that but it's fun and the the love when people ask me what is my greatest asset in hunting, it's not being able to read this or any particular trait I can point to. It's the trait of I love being in the woods. I love squirrel hunting. I love deer. I like a I like a problem. I like to solve that problem. And it feels good when I do solve a problem and I have success. And I also get a tremendous enjoyment out of failure. Failure is the greatest teacher there is. I'm going to try something new this year. As you know, I live on the Homochitto River and I've I've done this before, but I'm going to use it a lot more. Mississippi has allowed a special velvet season this year. And it's really too hot to hunt, but I don't have the only thing I have to worry about is keeping my feathers dry. So, I've already been down there kind of scouting the place out. I'm going to access My I'm gonna build a hide and I'm gonna I'm probably gonna hunt during that velvet season. I I can't believe I'm gonna do that in the heat and during the hot part of the year because I don't like hunting in the heat. I do not like it. But what I'm gonna start doing is I'm gonna slip into the Homachitta River about three or four hundred yards above my blind, and then I'm just gonna drift down in the river and my blind is only gonna be a few yards from the bank of the river. I'm just gonna slither out of the river and into my blind, So I'm going to use water, not with a boat, just, I mean, I'm going to, it's going to be 90 degrees. I'm just going to slip into the river and access it that way. Um, And, you know, that's, that's thinking outside the box. And I I just can't wait to try it. And whether I fail or succeed, I'm going to have a good time doing
1: it. That sounds super cool. And I I agree with what you said earlier too, about uh, people who small game hunt, when you know, kind of how they were brought up versus uh, people who weren't, uh, I, I definitely have noticed like a difference between the people I know who small game hunted getting into hunting versus the people who don't. And it, I, I've never heard it put like that, but it, you hit it on the head like the whole goal oriented thing. And this is the difference between me and Jacob and me and Michael uh, because both, oh, of guys, yeah, 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 both of those guys, yeah, both uh, of those guys didn't, and it's not a shot at them or anything, there's no right or wrong way to do it, but um, like. Jacob's a great example with the turkey hunting, man. He gets into turkey hunting. He's fired up. He's buying the stuff. We're going turkey hunting. And then he doesn't kill a turkey for three years, and he's, like, he's backed off of it a good bit, you know. And and for me, like, I've had a lot of bad turkey seasons, but, man, I, I just enjoy being out there. But it's the same way with deer hunting because, man, when I start getting real goal-oriented with my deer hunting, I end up, up being miserable, which – from the standpoint of killing big bucks is really to my detriment. Um, I feel like, because, uh, I don't know. I just don't get as, as fired up and into it as other people, but I'm enjoying myself. So I guess there's really no right or wrong way. Um, but Travis, you mentioned some stuff with the, with the velvet hunt coming up that that's pretty interesting. So you're talking about going and slipping in, uh, and going down a river to get into your hide or blind. And if people want some, uh, uh, some background on that terminology and what you're talking about there. They need to go listen to the first episodes. Um, but when it, when it comes to doing that hunt uh, or really not even just that hunt, but just hunts in general, do you ever use like an early season squirrel hunt as like a, like a scouting tool where you're going in there and you're just kind of enjoying the woods and doing a hunt, but also kind of figuring out what's going on in that neck of the woods, or do you tend to stay out of those areas when it comes to the small game stuff?
2: Well, since I'm a bow hunter, there's very little time that squirrel hunting and there's very little time in Mississippi that I can't take either with a bow. So yes, I will go squirrel hunting some with a 22 in in the very short, if only a couple of weeks, if that, that you're not squirrel hunting. But yes, I, I do use squirrel hunting for scouting. One of my you ask about the transition, I have a very vivid memory, I could still go there right now. It's down there in on our family land in the swamp. I was I had I had become a good squirrel hunter. I guess I was probably 14 by now. I'm I'm guessing it's been a long time ago. And I remember I had encounters as I as I got to be a better squirrel hunter. At first, no, you'd see a glimpse of a deer. You'd see a flag disappearing. As I became a better squirrel hunter, I would ha- start having encounters with deer, with coyotes, with all sorts of animals that I didn't have before because now I'm moving much. I'm, I'm more of a woodsman. I'm not. I'm not disturbing the forest. So I started having, I would see does. I'd see little bucks all the time, squirrel hunting. And that didn't happen when I first started. And the first time I run up on a big buck squirrel hunting, I'll, I'll never forget it. It was, uh, and, and to this day, I honestly cannot tell you why I didn't kill the deer, because deer season was open. I was squirrel hunting. It was deer season. It was actually cold weather, kind of late season. But I was squirrel hunting, and I had a, I could see him coming through the faux magnolias I mentioned earlier, and I was, I had learned to stay, use them for cover, and I wound up with a, about a 140-inch buck, you know, like 25 yards from me. I could see his horns coming through the magnolias, but I couldn't see anything else, and I remember how rattled i was i had killed a few deer by then but i had never killed a a what i you know that thing he was maybe mid 130s 140s which was a monster back then and uh and i remember he might as well have been the jordan buck or a new world record to me i mean i remember my knees shaking i remember my mouth getting dry i remember that feeling i had never had that feeling I'd I'd always get excited. You see a doe or a little buck, there's that magic moment. This was different. And I remember he come out and I had a, I had a, at that time I had saved up and I had bought me a T-bolt, a Browning T-bolt. And I had saved up and I had me a loophole scope on. So I was, I was in high cotton. And I remember I, I watched him through the scope and he come out there and I, I could have very easily killed him. I mean. It would have been easy. To, and to, to be honest, I don't remember why I didn't. I may not have realized at the time it was legal or it just never crossed my mind. I was so mesmerized. But I, I didn't I didn't shoot him. But the, the that encounter. Changed me. Uh, I, that's what got me interested in big bucks. I had never seen one up close like that. My grandpa was cut from a different cloth. They would go down there and they didn't kill big deer often. But back then, they farmed soybeans all down there on our property, and there were some nice deer. And I remember my grandpa and them would kill nice 10, 8 points, nice racks that people would be proud of today. And they'd cut horn's head, everything off, and throw it in the river. You know, they were after the meat. Horns were just the, the only the only deer back then that was important, so to speak was my uncle killed one, the dogs run it and bait it in the pond, and it was just a monster. And I remember they, he was so big, they actually cut his horns off and put them out on an old barn. And looking back now, I know that was a, of course the squirrels and rats eat them up over the years. That was a probably a 170-something inch deer. I mean, he was a monster, especially back then. So I wasn't taught to the the caring about horns kind of, you know, I wasn't taught that. So I had to, that was my first encounter. And of course, culture changed after that. As I began to get older, that's when the the big deer, friend it, it, it went from, I never heard the term big buck hunter, you just deer hunt. And as culture changed, that was my first real excitement with a big buck, was, was wild squirrel hunting.
0: Houndstooth Game Call's Dixie Hens Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spur Master and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls, and it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spur Master Call and Success Call they had. Now pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spur Master and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to HoundstoothGameCalls.com you use the promo code SOP24 again promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com how and also how things have changed especially like what you've seen where like again that generation like your grand grandfather's generation your like your uncle's generation like dad's generation it wasn't like a big deal necessarily that i mean if they kill like a, an absolute giant you like you like you said your uncle killed that's something but like just decent deer or good deer that people would say you know they'd get mounted today it wasn't a big deal for them back then it's kind of interesting how how everything's changed but also kind of brings it into perspective of you know as things do change figuring out like how to become effective because like those guys back there they'd kill probably anything as long as it was legal or whatever you know meat was meat so now everything's changed so much where it's just about like the, the buck itself which is you know fine you know it's you know Shoot, hunt deer for whatever your reasons are for, whether you're just trying to fill the freezer where you're trying to go after that one specific buck. And if you don't kill them, it is what it is, kind of like what happened to you last year. Um, and I know a lot of other guys the same way. Like they'll go years without tagging a deer, or tagging a deer because they're waiting for that one deer that they've been trying to hunt. And it's all about, like, having fun with it, which kind of comes back to, like, the, on the small game side, is, like, going out there and, like you said, enjoying the woods and having fun with it. But I also understand, like, what failures like. And failure isn't the end of the world. It's a learning experience to then build upon. I think you said in Ep- it was one of the first... Episode, or second episode, something about the like failures, the seasoning of life, or you said something like that, that like kind of like helps cultivate someone of who they are and be able to overcome that adversity. And maybe I might have you know said that out of context, but it was something about like the the, the kind of seasoning that kind of forms somebody of who they're going to be and how they're going to be able to handle those situations. And I truly, I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I can't recall that word for word. I'm prone to to saying things like that. I,
2: I'll get something on my mind, and I it'll just come out like that kind of like a parable or a saying some of them may sound wise a lot of them sound stupid but you know i mean it just i, I tend to talk like that but yeah failure is I, I love failure failure is excellent if you the thing about failure is like you were talking about your turkey hunting i've never been much of a turkey hunter my uh i, I love turkeys i would rather i could just sit for hours mesmerized watching them drum and spit as long as they were doing that i couldn't shoot them anyway because i wouldn't want to stop the show but you were talking about the failure of turkey hunting when you and let's go back to the my failure of last year that deer that i did not get i just never could get any kind of pattern on it um you know i think about that deer a lot and i'm trying to figure out what could i do different can i change something up your turkey hunting your failure don't just fail and say, "Well, too bad, no luck." Try to figure out why you failed. I mean, think about it. I I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about hunting and how I can do something different. And that passion started with chasing fuzzy-tailed rats around in trees. And I still, I still love to chase squirrels.
0: Well, I was gonna say it kind of comes back down. Like when you talk about the failure, is like me, me and Andrew had a conversation about somebody today earlier. It's like you've got to be able to handle failure when it's dealt to you, based off whatever the circumstances are. Because if you can't, you're not going to be able to keep yourself together in those situations and figure out how to overcome them. And also not getting in the rut, and this could be a really important episode, especially before season really kicks off here for a lot of people, not getting in a rut of doing the same thing you did last year and you didn't have success with it. Well, why do it again this year when it didn't work for you last year if you actually put in the time and effort for it? And, and, and like you said, like kind of fine-tuning what to change or how to adjust in order to get out of that, that failure or that, that lack of success for whatever it is. Now, your situation is totally different because you're hunting a specific buck. and uh, But just like the average listener is listening. Like if you didn't have like a great season last year, which defined great by however you want to define it, what caused that and, and how do you need to go about adjusting it for this coming season to make it where it's not like it was last season? And I feel like so many people – I feel like this podcast specifically has been an eye-opener for a lot of people because I've heard people previously, before they started listening listeners reach out to us, like, you know, you hear people like – I'm thinking of Richard Fott, who's a past guest of ours, who's been on here multiple times, talking about, like, I don't go sit in the woods necessarily to just go sit in the woods. He's like, I can go do that outside of deer. He's like, I'm going in the woods to go kill, you know, a specific deer or kill, kill a buck or whatever. So I'm trying to – he's constantly trying to learn of, like, how do I need to get better in order to kill that buck that I'm trying to go after. And it's, like, the same thing for a lot of guys. It's it's nothing against, like, going into the woods just to, you know, have fun with it. But it's also, like, if you're truly there to, like, you know, you want to have success, figuring out what it's going to take to be successful where you're at and, and learn upon it. And, again, woodsmanship really comes into that. Um, it, it's kind of amazing, especially with me over the last couple of years, how more that woodsmanship starting to kind of being applied and learned and actually seen in the field. It's one thing to hear about it, like from you or, you know, a lot of our other guests who really talk about it. It's another thing to go out there and implement it and really start to learn it because the thing is you can't teach woodsmanship. You can talk about it and like kind of what it looks like for you, but really it's something you've got to go out there and experience for yourself and figure out how do you become a better woodsman to become a more efficient hunter and understanding the environment that you're in. To become more effective. Hey right, Travis, I got a question. This is maybe a little bit, a
1: little bit kind of off topic, but not really. When it comes to uh, to squirrel hunting, I've heard other people do this, and I'm curious if you've ever done it. But have you ever um, almost used squirrels to key in, like, on feed trees for deer hunting? Because I've heard people talk about, especially like very early in the season when the oaks aren't dropping really, really good and you have a bunch of squirrels that are just really concentrated on this one tree, they're knocking a lot of acorns out of the tree and then the deer will kind of start coming to that. Is that something you've ever had experience with just out of curiosity?
2: Yeah, that was my, actually, when I first started trying to, when I first got serious with deer with bows, it was was for feed trees and I would, I was always squirrel hunting. I don't squirrel hunt as much as I used to. This, I've been working too much. I'm going to have to see if I can fix some of that. But <laughs> the, a lot of times, by the time deer season rolled around, I was, I knew what trees were bearing, which weren't. I knew if this white oak was loaded or if it wasn't. I knew that from squirrel hunting because if if the squirrel, you know, squirrels like white oak acorns too and squirrels like anything squirrels will lead you to a persimmon thicket. um anything a deer likes the squirrel likes too so you're you're absolutely correct and yes i have i have definitely taken knowledge that i have learned from squirrel hunting and translated it into killing a deer i've actually had one equal the other
1: yeah and another thing too So, and this is something that I feel like a lot of people probably run into is you might have a hardwood stand, especially where you're at, you might have a big river bottom and you've got a whole bunch of oak trees in it. And maybe a lot of them are dropping kind of around the same time and it can be overwhelming. Have you ever had experience where the squirrels seem to really favor, or really even anything, just the squirrels, the birds, whatever, is really favoring this one tree and there might be 10 white oaks right there in a general area but there's this one that they're just really hammering and that being the same one that the deer's ham- that the deer hammer as well like almost like a sweet tree is what we used to call that
2: Yeah that can be but you have to understand too that pressure and circumstances uh, a squirrel may if you've got an oak if you let's, let's say you've got several different white oaks in the area you may have one that has easier access for the squirrels to get to without running into owls, hawks, because of its location to dens and, and, and safety, it may be more preferred by the squirrels while not the deer. So you, you got to kind of like everything else in hunting, there's very few absolutes. So you have to be, a, and that's part of woodsmanship is you know, just cause you see a bunch of squirrels in a tree doesn't mean that that's necessarily the ones all the deer are using. They may be in that tree because they're, they're safer there. There, there's just, uh, you're gonna, I'm, I'm not an absolute guy. There just are no absolutes. It's going in, reading the woods and figuring it out.
0: Travis, I want to bring up a, a topic here, uh, which anyone that knows you or listened to your past episodes know you're a big traditional bow hunter or, or, or archer. And I want to know, how did like this experience of like you and growing up small game hunting and specifically squirrel hunting, how did that woodsmanship kind of apply once you started getting into traditional archery and then transitioning to ground hunting? Can, can you talk about some of that and maybe some things that maybe you had to learn separately, but also some things that directly applied from maybe that squirrel hunting aspect to start focusing on the ground with a traditional archery equipment?
2: Well, one thing that got me on the ground early, because I, I went through phases. Um, I got, you know, I, I the way I was raised was, you know, any legal deer, my grand all them, all the guys back then, if it had hardened antler, they would shoot it. Shooting a doe would get you beaten about the head and neck with a blunt object. You did not shoot does back then. So I had to I and I was I was of that mindset. I mean, you're the way you're raised has an effect on you, whether you want it to or not. And it took me a long time to shoot a doe. And you know, of course, I can see the wisdom of it now in in ways. But now honestly, back then there weren't the deer here. There were there, there wasn't an overpopulation problem when I was a teenager. There there just there just wasn't. There's way more deer now. So I had to overcome I had to I had to overcome traditions, so to speak. So my first phase was I became interested in deer and I killed a few small bucks at a young age. I, I think I killed my first deer at, at eight or nine years old. I was pretty young. And uh, it was a small little old buck, spike, I think. I'm Well, in fact, I'm sure it was a spike. And then it, it, that's the way I hunted for a few years. And, and then the doe killing came in. And I killed a few does. And then in my mid-teens, after the encounter with the big deer, with the squirrel hunting, I began to want, well, I'd like to kill a nice buck. You know, grandpa had one mounted. Everybody's got one mounted, which never understood that. they. My Uncle Red has a deer mounted. It's still over at the old house that we use for a rent house. And it was mounted back in the 50s. And it's a it's a nice eight point. But later in life, he killed much bigger deer but never mounted. So their their mindset was just very different than now. But those traditions had to be overcome, and, and I changed as I began to throw them off and do my own thing. When I started, the first time I showed up down at our old camp house, because it was a family affair. I mean, uncles, cousins, nephews, aunts, even some of my aunts were huntresses. They were, and they were good at it. And the first year... That I showed up down there, even compound bows would get you laughed at. Show up with a recurve in the early seventies in nineteen Mississippi in nineteen seventy one or seventy two Mississippi Deer Camp. You want to get laughed at? That was that was one of the best possible ways. And only my grandfather took pity on me, and he he understood, and he actually, while he certainly was not a traditional bow hunter he did not discourage me from trying my own things and so as i as i transitioned into life I went from rifles to compound bows well i actually started but i killed my first deer with a bow it was a traditional bow but i was thinking man i got these new they're so much faster i mean if if i can kill a deer with a recurve if i get me one of them compound bows man i i might get a big one and I fell into that mindset and the first thing I learned to do is if we're going to talk about big deer I learned to kill big deer with rifles and I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore I wanted to kill a big deer with a compound bow and I did that I, and it, it 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 I make it sound easy these are years of struggle and you know this is a lot of <laughs> A lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but a lot of fun. And then I transitioned into, you know, I I love traditional. And actually, my mindset going in was I'm just going to hunt with my traditional bows and enjoy it. If I never kill another big deer, who cares? And then I started killing big deer with traditional bows. It it really, you know, all I had to do was adjust my game a little bit. And it really wasn't, uh, honestly, The way I hunt now, a compound bow would be a huge disadvantage to me. So I I took the weapon I wanted to use and I adapted my style of hunting. If I was hunting, if I was seriously wanting to kill a big deer with a compound bow, I would not hunt the way I hunt now with traditional bows. You have to take your weapon into consideration. What works well with a compound bow does not necessarily translate to traditional, and what works well in the traditional world would be a rolling disaster with a compound bow. Having to come upright, reach an anchor point, and all the process of shooting a compound bow accurately would absolutely take away 90% of my shot opportunities.
0: And if people want to know more about that, that we cover that whole aspect of why that's the case in episode 210, like in, in great detail. So some new listeners are going to be like, well, what is it? What is it? Like, not to rehash that whole conversation because we do, a, I felt like you did a really good job in episode 210 explaining that application and why your hunting style, specifically from the ground, being a traditional archer is so much more effective and efficient than using a compound bow. Uh, and then also that transition away from, you know, the the traditional setups you'd use as a compound bow, you know, being elevated the whole nine yards. Uh, we, we covered in great detail, but it does kind of show like how you have transitioned from, you know, small game hunting to hunting, you know, with hounds and everything. Uh, like, again, a lot of people did, especially back in the 70s uh, and 60s, 70s. Uh, and even, I mean, now, I mean, we still have listeners that, you know, hunt with hounds uh, that, you know, are hunting areas with where they run, run dogs. To go through, you know, rifle hunting, being very efficient with that, killing big deer, which we covered that, I think, in episode – I think that was uh 213, the second time we had you on, because you were talking about climbing to the top of pine trees with their climbing spikes and, you know, your your binos and having your Sorowski binos, whatever, and, and shooting them out of their beds on cutovers, which is pretty freaking epic. <laughs> I ain't going to lie, guys. You might want to go – I'm actually – I'm going to go really listen to those episodes, because they get you all fired up. Um, tells you about, you know, climbing high for sure. Uh to then going to getting more into compound uh, hunting. And then from that, transitioning after you killed the real big deer uh, down there, uh, something around that time frame, I believe, after the whole trail camera aspect, fading back into going hardcore into the traditional archery uh, and then having tremendous success there too. And, and again, it kind of all comes back down to that woodsmanship. And, again, no matter what weapon you're hunting with, you've been efficient and effective with it, it's just figuring out the woodsmanship and how to mold the different hunting style to you know that weapons capabilities and, and how to use that wisdomship to your advantage, and uh, really kind of shows case you specifically on um, being a versatile hunter too, and not relying on any one way to be successful. If that makes sense.
2: Yeah, versatility is everything because there's no. Perhaps there's other people that can because there are some very successful hunters that don't hunt anything like me. That have these, and and I there's a there's guy in Natchez. I've got a ton of respect for him. He is, I mean he 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 knows how to kill a mature deer. That's all there is to it. And he doesn't hunt anything like me. He has very he has very static procedures. He does, and he you know he doesn't he doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. He's he's found something that works for him, and that's just all he does. He's a specialist. And I'm not a specialist. I'm a, I'm a figure it out guy. And sometimes I figure it out. And then, like last year, you know, I, I, I guess I, I, depend on my, my tools of the trade that allow me to get in position, to have success. Are number one entry and exit to the hunting area, the ability to play the wind. There's certain things that I do follow. But I may, you know, just like this year, I'm going to I'm going to float down a river to get in my blind instead of slip into the woods, because that's the best access. And it keeps me from having a heat stroke getting to my blind.
0: Now, is that also for I want to kind of bring that back up like your, your game plan for this season? Is that for trying to kill that specific buck you were trying to hunt last year? Or is this just for the general area where there's good deer in the area? No,
2: that the particular deer that I was after last year does not spend a lot of time in that area. I have no, his, his, and that's one of the things that made him so problematic to hunt was he's one of the rovers that I call him. He, he, he doesn't, he's hard to pattern. I I don't know if I ever mentioned he's in the same area. Did I ever mention the murderer buck that was killing other
0: bucks? in any of the podcasts yeah that was i think on the second episode we had you on 213
2: this deer is, this deer is in the same general area as that old buck, and he's he reminds me of that deer his body is huge he's he's old and i, I first saw him when they were running together in the bachelor season and when they broke up and there were actually two deer around that were much bigger than him horn wise, but they were, you know, they look like runts body wise. He, he's a, he's what I call a bully. As soon as the bachelor groups broke up, those other deer disappeared. You didn't see any other bucks in that area. When you do see a younger buck in that area, he is absolutely wired and it's not because of hunting pressure. It's because of that other old buck. And that's kind of why I went after him. I just like those because he's, his his horns are not much at all. He's got, you know, he's just a heavy horned old deer, but he's just a bully. And he just kind of does things his own way. And I never could figure out an effective pattern to get on him. And and that happens. I mean, you don't,
0: you don't get them all. I, I want this is this is a, a side note here or a side discussion? But I'm, I'm curious, what have you learned over the last few decades, especially as you became more of a uh, n- not just a versatile hunter, but when you were very goal oriented? You know, we had a podcast with you. I think it was maybe last year uh, on trail camber, and, and your the way you used to run trail cameras that was extremely effective for you for finding, locating, and killing really big deer. Uh, which I think if, if I remember correctly, one of those deer that you killed down there in Mississippi was over 200 inches. Uh, but the whole idea of hunting a specific buck versus just hunting being more of like a generalist, was there any like pattern to activity, uh, or, or, or pattern to, um, uh, being consistent when it came to hunting specific deer, like what you were doing last year, Versus just hunting general deer sign where you're just trying to take a, a, a really nice mature buck. Like I know some of those public land bucks you killed two years ago, or maybe three years ago, uh, which was two bucks in the like, upper 140s or mid 140s. Has um, there anything you've learned after targeting a specific buck that's completely different or very different from if you're just kind of more of a journalist, like just looking for a mature deer, but not a specific buck?
2: Absolutely. The whole, everything is different. The the targeting a specific deer, which I did that last year. Now, it was not like I was when I was obsessed with cameras. I I wanted that deer, and I went after him a lot. I also hunted a few other places. Uh, Honestly, I didn't deer hunt as much as I did last year. So I didn't get obsessed with that deer, and I didn't devote my life to killing him like I used to do back in the day. The trail cameras were... You know, I thank God that they didn't have the ones they have now back then, the ones that just send it to your phone, because I would have completely lost my mind. I would have been, I don't know what would have happened, but I would have went totally feral if I would have had those. So I need the limiting factor, so to speak. And the 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 way you go after them, I would use the cameras to find a big deer the biggest deer I had access to because remember I don't have one piece of land to hunt because being in real estate and traditional bows and knowing a lot of people I have a lot of different areas i can hunt so I would put the cameras out to find the biggest air biggest deer I had access to and then I would try to solve the puzzle of how to kill it whereas when you go after let's say you find a an area that's just eat up with nice big rubs and you just know there's nice deer in the area. That's a very different scenario and it's, it has to be approached completely different. And honestly, it's way more fun that way. I, I really, I won't touch on it much because I, I went in depth on the last episodes, but I really got carried away with those trail cameras and it took all the fun out of it. And that's the reason I stopped. I'm not any trail camera. I'm not any of that. I just got carried away and had to kind of have a little self-intervention there.
0: Yeah, we've had that conversation a lot in the podcast because we, we we talked to so many people very recently. I mean, uh, that have tremendous success with trail cameras. Uh, one one of the guys, uh, one of our buddies, Shane Parker, who's been on the podcast, is actually going to have him back on soon for a part three episode. Depending, I don't know when this episode is going to come out, but. Yeah. Um, and and Shane had run – it's a two-year study that he's been doing with 170 trail cameras on public land tracking deer movement. And I, first off, I can't even contemplate, like, what it's like. Like, we had guys joking, like, man, he spends $15,000 a year just on lithium batteries for his cameras. <laughs> but um, just uh, I can't imagine what it's like to run that many trail cameras. But he's very data-oriented, and it's kind of really analyzed the data. It's It's fascinating what he's learned. And he hasn't got burnout on it quite yet, but there, I hear some from a lot of people, again, just like kind of like what you're saying, Like it gets so exhausting, and also you rely so much on the trail camera itself, it's like you might be overlooking certain things, because that trail camera can only see such a small window of the area around there, which kind of comes back to the conversation, our buddy Paul Putero, who's been on the podcast many a times, um, he tracked the deer uh, two years ago, or last year, uh, on public land, tracked it. Uh, I can't remember if it was snow or not, but anyways, and it walked past, I think it was seven different trail cameras in like a mile and a half. He was tracking it and it never walked in front of the trail camera. It always walked to the side or to the behind it and never, w- he's like, I tracked it and never was it in front of that said set- that trail camera on this travel corridor. Um, and he's like, you know, when people get so into trail cameras, he's like, unless you put a ton of trail cameras in one specific location, like what, what Travis or what, uh, Shane has done. Uh, you, you don't know what's walking behind it or to the side of the camera that it's just not showing up on.
2: Yeah, when I, I and I learned that when I was serious about the trail cameras was that you put it, I would start, first of all, I would like to find a bank, a ditch, some natural, kind of like I do when I'm trying to kill a coyote. I want something at my back where they can't get behind me. I would try to put the trail camera there. I would not put it in an open place, I would not put a trail camera in a field or food plot, i never did that. I would try to find the bedding area because deer will, you, you can put corn, you can even put my secret sauce that I mix up with peanut butter and vanilla extract and salt. You can put that out there and I don't think every buck's coming to it. I think there's some noise they can hear in some of that. There's something, but I really believe some deer kind of avoid trail cameras and i can't tell you how many i used to find the giants that i would get another deer triggered it and you would see him way in the background uh several of the really nice deer i killed with trail cameras i never got a good picture of i would just know they were there from seeing them in the background that's the reason i was always careful to where i did have it pointed i wanted to be able to see distance because you, like I said, I picked up numerous deer in the background, not right up good pictures.
0: This is a side note to everything because I know you've killed some absolute monsters deer. I think you said on one of the podcasts, and maybe if I, if I remember correctly, I think you said you killed like forty deer over 140 inches or something like that. Um, and one thing that I'm just I'm just curious. This is this has very little weight to it, but I'm just curious. What is the biggest deer you've ever had on trail camera in Mississippi? Was it that? that 200 plus inch deer that you killed or was did you ever have one on bigger that you never could connect with
2: no it was the it was that deer he was and and he was i didn't realize that was a very strange deer that deer was i think seven was the best we guessed and he got palmated and kind of went nutty there at the end he had we had pictures of him for i had pictures of him for three years and he was fairly normal he had some slight palmation and he's he's got a big score because he's palmated and he's i think he's 22 or 23 points you know he's non-typical it adds up differently and uh and he's the highest scoring but i don't you know his his main beams are like 24 longest time is nine inches other than the palmation and the extra points don't get me wrong he's wonderful he's very unique beautiful deer other than that, you know, I, the the deer I killed in 07, it scores 197. That was the last deer I killed with a gun. But he's got 28-inch main beams. He's got 14-inch G2s. You know, the that is a much bigger deer to me. The the To me, my best deer ever is the Slick 10. He's about 178 inches I killed out on the lake, down at Lake Mary. And I I killed him with a with a recurve, a a Black Widow K B X recurve. And to me, that is my best deer. I think twenty seven inch main beams. You know, just the frame is huge. Twenty two inches inside. the 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 deer over two hundred inches outscores the others, but. I don't think he's near as impressive as the others.
0: And then, does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it really does. It, it really does, because when you see these huge typical frames, that one on Lake Mary, we've posted that photo before. We'll probably post it again on this episode, because I think you're taking a photo with him like, up against a cypress tree, up against the water with your with your bow there, and he's just ginormous. I mean, like you said, slick tin, just monster deer. Um, and, and that's something I've always interested with, because I feel like there's a, there's a consistency with these big buck killers when it comes to like, not only, like, being able, of course, find deer, which I know, you you know, you have an awesome opportunity because, you know, what you do for a living with Lane Real Estate and everything else and having, you know, just a bunch of different places that you can hunt, but also even, like, what you've done publicly and killed some big deer there, too. It's just, there's a consistency with the guys that can kind of, to be honest, keep it together in those situations and execute those shots and also have, like, the determination to go and find deer like that. Because, again, you can't find deer like that everywhere uh, and have the determination to not only find them, but also figure out how you can execute the shots to, you know, take the deer that you've taken. And, and that kind of comes back to like the validity of kind of, I think you as a woodsman and you as a hunter is like the consistently factor of like being able to, Keep it controlled in those situations. I know you've hunted a whole bunch too. We've talked about in the previous episodes. Uh, I think you had mentioned in one of the episodes that, you know, for a, a long time, it almost, I can't remember if you initially took off work, but you spent a ton of times out in the woods deer hunting. So that, you know, there's a ton of failure in between all the success, but the success definitely outshines that failure for sure.
2: Yeah, my, my success ratio is extremely low. It just looks good when it happens. That slick ten you're talking about was especially sweet because I had given up trail cameras, and it was the second scenario you presented earlier. Of I just knew that he was on, he was down there on the lake, and that 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 is a strange area. It you liable to kill a five year old that's 190 inches, and then you're liable to kill a five year old that is 110 inches. The genetics down there, I do not understand. But I had, and actually, goes back to the topic of this. I found this squirrel hunting over on this particular place, and he had just, it just tore. I mean, just tore up enormous. When you see trees the size of your thigh tore up, that's not a that's not a two year old. You can pretty much bank on that being a, a a bully. And he he had a he had a scrape line there. And I, I don't hunt scrape lines. I I just don't do it. But I found this place during squirrel hunting. Uh, I found the rubs during squirrel hunting. I went back and I found the scrape line he was using. And because of the way that scrape line was set up, and I think we covered this in another one, so I won't go into detail, but I recognized, you know, he's going to be in that thicket back there checking those scrapes during the day. So i I just got back in the thicket and got him. I mean, just everything went my way. And and that was a, I don't know if, if the, the two deer, you mentioned the season before on public land. If you put those deer up next to him, he dwarfs them. But he's off of private land. We're in the land of giants where these other two were, you know, public land, Homochitto National Forest, pine cone eaters. I mean, that's really not true. But you know, it that you just can't. You got to judge a trophy by where he comes from. And honestly, year before last, when I kill them two deer early season, because that's also not something I'm particularly good at. I'm normally I'm normally not the guy that goes out and bangs one out quick early season. I, it's usually later on. And to kill two nice deer on public ground in one year, I I think I'm probably more proud of them than I am the giant from private land.
0: Mm-hmm. And I wanted to bring this up because uh, we had mentioned two of your episodes that you came on, which is uh, 210 and 213, but you also came back on for a third episode, which is episode 257. It's The title is Trolling for Monster Bucks. And it's when we had had you on, I think it was last summer. Yeah, it was last May. On the discussion of your trail cam strategy and, again, how you became so effective with it to the point where you got burnt out because of it and you kind of went away from trail cameras. So that's another really good episode, guys, if you want to kind of get more details about Travis, about yourself, um, and and fine-tune kind of just, I guess, a better understanding of kind of who you are and kind of what's gotten you to this point. It's a really, really good episode that I think you can become very effective if you kind of look at that from a way to, you know, run cameras. But, you know, Travis, we're coming up on on time here uh, to kind of get to the point of wrapping up. Uh, I definitely want to have you back on there because there's so much to talk about, especially with the amount of deer that you've killed and the amount of big deer you've killed. There's a ton of life lessons, I feel like, with a lot of this. So, you know, if listeners, you know, enjoy this episode, of course, you know, ride in, leave us a, a review. And, you know, let us know if you want us to have, of course, Travis back on, which even if they said, no, Travis, I'm having you back on the podcast. (laughs) Uh, But that being said, Travis, at a point to wrap it up here, do you have any kind of final pieces of advice or words of wisdom or anything to kind of leave guys, especially with this coming out just before season, uh, you know, started out in in a lot of the southeast? Well, this was
2: this was the intent or the, the I guess the subject of this particular episode was how small game hunting and other hunting can transit it can make you a better deer hunter. That's I think if you're if you're hunting if you're hunting birds over upland dogs any kind of hunting helps you. It, it may not you may not learn to buck the wind from shooting quail for a deer, but you learn something. A, a woodsmanship is you just can't go wrong by being out there doing things. And thinking outside the box, you know, I had a dog, I won't touch on it much, I actually wrote a story about her, but I had a pit bull, one of our catch dogs, actually the one I was telling you about that I turned her loose, she ran over and earlier and, and grabbed the wrong dog. Her name was Ellie. Ellie would follow me stalking. Now, at this point, I was using mostly compounds and other things, but she could follow me And when I stopped, she stopped. And I enjoyed hunting. You're a dog hunter, too. You like the dogs. She made my hunts so much more enjoyable. And I killed... She would sit in the blind with me. And you could not ask for a better hunting partner. So the the small game hunting introduces you to so many things. It helps you think outside the box. And it basically... It made me a better problem solver. Without that foundation, had you just took me in my early twenties, I would have uh I don't think I would have near the deer on the wall that I do. My foundation really went a long way to that
0: absolutely well Travis again we greatly appreciate you coming on to the podcast again listeners if you've enjoyed it please share this podcast with a buddy Uh, share it with some friends talk about it on social media and also hey if you really enjoy the podcast leave us a five star review on iTunes or Spotify and let us know again what you liked about this episode you know how it's applicable to you and again uh, you know make sure you all stay tuned for another episode with Travis coming up in the future but Travis thanks again for coming on the show and we greatly appreciate you spending some time with us this evening and sharing some knowledge Thanks guys, it was good
2: talking to y'all.
1: you guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that, that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you. Whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find you know a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year, it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.